I'm Alina Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. The Anti-Dystopians is hosted and produced by me to provide a space to have conversations about radical and critical approaches to technology. If you'd like to support the production of the Anti-Dystopians, you can subscribe to our email newsletter by following the links below. We also include links to articles, books, or other additional reading mentioned in our conversations, as well as alerts about upcoming episodes, so be sure to take a look. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. everybody. We, I'm very excited because today we're going to be talking with John Naughton and Josh Simons. Um, Josh Simons has been on the podcast before. He's a postdoc in technology and democracy at Harvard University. And John Naughton is a senior research fellow in Crash at Cambridge and a co-founder of the Mindaroo Center for Technology and Democracy and a technology columnist at The Observer. And today we're going to be talking about Elon Musk and his bid to take over Twitter. Um, so thank you both so much for being here today. So maybe we could just start with a bit of background to the story. So Elon Musk has once again been in the news recently. Um, but John, you know, you wrote a fantastic column in The Guardian, which we'll link um, below for our listeners. Um, but maybe you could just kind of give us uh, a background summary of, of what's been going on with Elon Musk and Twitter. Well, what's been going on is basically that it's what happens with with Musk in general, which is whenever he does something, there's um, a, an obsessional media circus around it. But in this case, he 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 announced uh, sometime after he had actually filed incorrectly to the SEC that he was buying he was buying something like fourteen percent for for nearly three billion dollars, um, and uh, that that was that happened in March. And sometime in April, the news broke, and then Twitter stock went up like a rocket. And and Musk made another eight hundred million, something like that, in a day, um, and and it looked then as though uh, he was he was on course to become a member of the Twitter board, and then there was all kinds of speculation about what would happen as a result of that. Um, he he declined to in the in the end sign the um, the the deal that would have given him a board seat, but. Uh, on the other hand, would have um, limited his freedom of action and also would have uh, given him some fiduciary responsibility and announced that he was thinking of something else. And the something else turned out to be that he might be the whole, he might buy the whole company. And at that point, everybody lost their marbles, uh, including the mainstream media in particular. Uh, and uh, And here we are. The speculation surrounding it uh, was fairly clueless in general, I would say, but but one of them was would would, would he bring would, would he allow uh, um, Trump back, say, um, and so on. And my, my feeling about it was that in general, nobody knew anything really, and they still don't because what goes on in his head is sort of impenetrable and known only to himself, if if indeed that. Um, so we're stuck. We're stuck. But but it it raised all kinds of. Um, nightmarish poss possibilities, like, for example, that we were going to be back in the era of Citizen Kane, 
that you know that he would be John, he would be Randolph Hearst and and John D. Rockefeller rolled into one, and so on and so forth. But actually, at the moment, we know little more than that. And the only thing it has done, I think, is it has uh, focused our attention on what happens when tech power combines with media power in a way that even Rupert Murdoch couldn't dream of. That's, that's where we are. I think John's account and summary of the madness of everyone, including potentially Elon Musk, is excellent and I need not add to it. So I wonder for both of you then, what do you think is the important part of this story? I mean, there's there's kind of a lot going on there. There's like whether like the there's a question of what is Musk doing? There's a question of like, will he be able to do what he claims he's going to do? Um, and there's a question of like what what will happen to Twitter and what will be the impacts and and what's the power of Twitter? So for 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 you two, like, what do you really think is the crucial important bit of this story? Well, for, for me, the important bit is that really this is about significant power. And anybody who doubts that this is important should cast their mind back to the period after the January the 6th insurrection uh, in the Capitol when, uh, when Trump was, was barred from Twitter. And I don't know whether you can remember what happened, but basically what happened is that there was a wonderful deafening silence. And if you wanted an illustration of what media power is like, then that was an astonishing demonstration of it, uh, because Trump more or less disappeared from, from the world. I know he didn't disappear, of course, in real life, uh, and he hasn't disappeared in Republican politics, but for the general sort of information ecosystem we live in, he effectively disappeared. I've always thought that Musk and Trump were very similar in one respect in relation to Twitter, in that they had used this, uh, this medium with a kind of intuitive genius of what it was for. Uh, and in, in both cases, it's much the same. Trump understood it um, and he used it, um, first of all, to build a fanatical cult-like base of followers and to essentially lead mainstream media by the nose for two years. Uh, he, he, he used Twitter to dominate the news agenda of most media. And I think that was an astonishing achievement and it was a success. Um, in Musk's case, he has had the same intuitive grasp of what it's for. He has built a colossal, I think it's 80 million um, fans. Uh, and and they are they have a cult-like devotion to the, to the great man um, with all the consequences of that in, that we know from social media. Um, but he has also used it, um, I think, to further his commercial um, ambitions, um, and he has used it to move stock markets. So this is significant for that reason, even if all the content of the stuff annoys us, it's significant in relation to media power. Yeah, so for me, similarly, uh, what matters here is not what Elon Musk is doing or thinks he's doing or understands himself to be doing. Um, I have no unique insight into that, and I don't really think that anyone else does either. But I also don't care that much. Um, and I think because of the structure of these companies that are owned and controlled by, you know, men, there's a, there's a slight tendency to report on some of the underlying issues as sort of great men versions of history um, in which we obsess over these binary choices like 
will he buy it successfully or won't he? Will he ban Trump or won't he? Um, and I just don't think that that is where the important questions about power, as John put it, really lie. Um, and for me, the really the underlying issue here is about um, corporate power and the and the exercise of corporate power over the infrastructure of, of speech in the public sphere, essentially. Um, and there's, I guess, there's a democracy version of that problem that's at, that play here, and then there's also a kind of narrower legal version of that problem that I think is actually quite important to Musk. Um, so the democracy version is, you know, you have a public square. Imagine a physical public square. It's got kind of elevated platform bits that politicians and other public figures speak on. It's got like megaphones that get handed out to people in the square. Um, now, part of that public sphere is Facebook, Twitter. They're the companies that own the public sphere that hand out the megaphones and that, um, you know, build the platforms. And in particular, their machine learning algorithms determine who gets to stand on the platform, who gets the megaphones and why. Um, and so what matters in the public sphere that we're talking about is who controls the designing of those machine learning algorithms and why, and who lays down the principles that they're designed according to and so on. And ultimately that's why ownership matters. And that's why the question of ownership pops up. Um, and there's a specific version of that at play, the legal version of that in this context, which is that Musk is in the middle of using the First Amendment to defend some of what he's been criticized or in fact banned from doing by the, F by the SEC in the agreement in 2019. So he's basically launching a First Amendment defense of his right to say certain things on Twitter that have implications for um, capital markets. And that is really fundamental because often the question of who controls the infrastructure of speech and, and what, what kinds of regulations can and should be imposed on private companies who control the infrastructure of speech and communication is framed as a First Amendment question. So the sort of culture wars phrase that some people have, have used to describe why Musk is wading into this is really an overly narrow way of thinking about what's happening here. Musk now has an interest in the First Amendment free speech framing of some of the questions about technology regulation that a lot of people have gone for. And he has an interest in taking a particular side in that debate and he can use a platform in, in, in his bid to do that. So I also think it's about how we understand the relationship between the First Amendment, corporate control and the infrastructure of speech. There's a slightly narrower version of that, a narrower legal version of that democracy question. Yeah, that's such an interesting point that it kind of brings together what both of you had said, which is that there's this other aspect to Musk's Twitter bit, as, as you referenced, Josh, which is that um, Musk has a legal regulatory limit on what he could post on Twitter because of the SEC ruling in which essentially the SEC was like, <laughs> you've has said, you know, you're posting misleading things to increase the value of, of stock in a way that, you know, we don't like. So he, he, for the past, I think it is two or three years has had a has had to have legal review of anything he's posting in case it, it you know, it affects share prices. And so I haven't seen, and I wonder what then the two of you think. So then there's this very curious relationship between this ownership bid, um, because like one of the things is that there's just, there's just power in owning Twitter. And even though, you know, right now one man quote unquote doesn't own twitter but still you know the the board and the and the stock owners have quite an immense amount of power the ceo of twitter to do something as you said john like deplatform 
Donald Trump, the pre- the president of the United States. Um, and so it is it, it it is an immense amount of power for Elon Musk to have. It's particularly a strange power to have if he's he's owning a company with these kinds of controls that a U.S. regulatory body has limited his ability to post on as a user. Um, So I wonder for then for the both of you, how do you think about the larger issues of like platform ownership? Um, Like, is it, is it good for any individual or private individual to own these communication platforms? If they are, as you say, Josh, a public square, is it that we do need more government like regulation in terms of like what can be, be posted. And I, you know, I was thinking a lot about this, like, is it better that the SEC regulates what Musk can say on for? Is it better that a private company, Twitter, is regulating what Trump can say on Twitter? You know, it, it seems like both of these are problematic powers. So how do you guys think about like who should own and structure and make these decisions and how should governments um, and or democracy regulate? I think that, uh, first of all, I think that um, Musk has inadvertently or deliberately um, framed this question in a confusing way, Um, because he keeps talking about free speech. And uh, I I think he sometimes mixes in this First Amendment uh, aspect of it. Now, the First Amendment bit of it applies only to attempts by a government body to regulate speech. Okay, in that case, his his part of his case, part of his legal case against the SEC recently has been that uh, that the the agency is infringing on his First Amendment rights, and because it's a government body, that's you can make a case for that. Okay, but then he talks about Twitter being the essential. Um, first of all, he talks about it as being the public square. Uh, it's not quite a public square. It's a privately owned public space. That's the first thing. So, um, and in in that context, um, the question about uh, about free speech uh, doesn't, in a sense, arise. Um, Twitter is a is a is a well, it's a public company, but as I say, it's a private organisation. Um, it has no First Amendment responsibilities. It can do what it likes, um, and indeed, as it did in relation to Trump. Um, and and could do or might not do in relation to him. So the the issue has been somehow creatively misframed, I think, uh, and all jumbled together. Uh, And I noticed that in in his TED talk um, this morning or yesterday, he he was again mixing the two. Um, So that's that's really important in this this respect. Um, And if he had if he if if he had accepted the place on the board um he would then be participating have to participate and improve uh, and approve uh, decisions by the company uh, whether or not to um curtail his his right to speech in that particular space but that's not his first amendment right um the wider question i think just to to finish off and answer your question is that uh if if he were to succeed in curtailing the uh, rights of of a democratically accountable body, which is the SEC, uh, to stop him doing things that affected share prices or whatever, um, then that would be a, a democratic outrage. Essentially, that's that would be a real scandal. 
Um, and I have no idea whether that might, will happen or not. But that's that's for me the 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 democratically dangerous bit of this stuff. Yeah, I I, I think I mostly um, agree with that. But I think that a creative uh, misframing is an overly generous way of describing <laughs> why it's framed in terms of the First Amendment. Because the crucial point about the First Amendment is that um, from the perspective of Musk or Zuckerberg um, and other owners of large technology companies, the First Amendment is effectively a constraint on the permissible scope and bounds of regulation that Congress or the legislature or states for that matter might develop. So if you want to start making First Amendment defences, then what you're essentially saying is, hey, watch out elected legislators, because there are limits to what you can do to regulate this company because it has First Amendment implications. So I think that it's entirely deliberate. And the, you know, his sort of uh, quits about it being to do with culture wars and Democrat versus Republican politics and, you know, the need to be able to say things that are not politically correct, that's all disingenuous. It's about the First Amendment. And this is a real important policy question um, in you know, in the United States. And in particular, you know, I think John is absolutely right to call it a democratic outrage. But at base, what's going on there is the difference between a constitutional democracy that America is that has a First Amendment, and therefore has all the problems with all the mad history of the First Amendment and how it's evolved and how the concepts that underpin it evolve. And then being able to apply those concepts to something that's fundamentally new, in ways that constrain the capacity of the legislature, Congress, to develop legislation to do anything about it. Um, and I think if you sort of take a step back for a minute and, and think about how Congress should relate to or approach that quandary basically, um, is in my view that we shouldn't think about it in terms of ownership primarily or certainly solely or probably even primarily. It's not really about ownership, it's about control and what forms of public control by whom and where are exercised over these companies. Um, and to go back to that public square example, you know, we're very used to, democracies are very used to having um, parts of the physical public square or the, or the institutions that assume the role of the physical public square by private companies. I mean, that's a commonplace. Coffee houses were private things, but, you know, we're told that in the you know, 16th, 17th centuries, those were the vital um, corners of, of the public sphere. You know, same with even some of the you know, Roman Forum was not all owned by, you know, the city, it was owned by um, some of the individual organizations that would like live and sell and exchange goods among it. But what matters is who gets to decide how they behave, um, you know, in what order they can say things and the rules around that. That's where I think the control question is vital. Um, and I think that what's important about the, the Musk story is that, or, or what should be taken to be important about it, is that it should focus our attention on that question of control and who gets to control why, how, because, you know, as soon as we ask the question, what would happen if Musk did own it, what would happen and what would change about control, then we're in the right sort of space. So to me, the fundamental issue is fundamentally about control and not ownership. That's, it strikes me too, as really also interesting thinking about that question, Josh, what would happen if, if Musk took over because of how many other industries are embedded within Twitter. So like I'm on academic Twitter and I'm also on book publishing Twitter and like people get agents or get book deals or get, you know, academic jobs and journals through Twitter's infrastructure. So the idea that like, I was like, wow, if Elon Musk 
actually owns Twitter and is able to, you know, have an edit button or whatever he wants to change. He can dramatically change many, many, many industries um, beyond just like, you know, curtailing uh, politicians who then, you know, you know, we, I think we're used to those like content moderation debates in terms of which politicians can say what and what gets gets um, uh, amplified. So so I'm wondering um, then how going back to that question then of, of control rather than ownership, Josh, like how would the two of you think about like what is the best form of asserting control like is it a user base you know there's been a lot of um proposals that like users should take over twitter and we should like you know the users of twitter unite and and take control is it state regulation is it like what what kind of changes would you see um to, to how we should think about like um having a collaborative or democratic control of of platforms like twitter I mean, I think the place that we should start there is uh, John's um, resistance to, to, to the um, Elon Musk legal argument in the case against the SEC, which is democratic outrage. And I am sort of baffled sometimes as to how we get ourselves in a muddle about this, at least about the starting point for this question, because um, democracy doesn't work through private organizations being controlled by the people who are members of them or use them. That's just not, that's not, that is a thing that might be good, but that's not the essence of how democracy works. Democracy works because citizens either exert control directly themselves through things like referenda or other forums, or they vote for legislators who pass laws that then, you know, control how private sector actors operate. So the starting point has, I think, has to be, and we must constantly go back to, in the United States Congress, in Britain Parliament, you know, in national democracies all over the world, the legislator has to pass laws that ultimately structure who gets to decide. And that leaves tons and tons of policy questions open for debate. You know, that could be anti-monopoly style regulation, it could be public utility style regulation, it could be, you know, DMA slash, well, DSA, you know, how you behave given you are this type of entities type, type regulation. But Ultimately, it has to be that legislators who are elected by citizens pass laws that structure accountability in these private corporations that control the infrastructure of speech. That has to be the starting point. Now, whether some form of user control or you know, user influence and input into the, into the way that that accountability is structured is a good thing, is a valid and important question that we should think about. I'm personally skeptical. Um, but it's downstream and way after you assert that fundamental legislative right. And that's what matters in a democracy. Um, and again, to go back to the you know, public square or public sphere type images, we're used to having infrastructure that a legislator sets some rules about the design of, the use of, the control over. We do that all the time. Um, and I don't think that it requires that much of a mental leap to imagine structuring legislation that begins to do that, you know, in a very agnostic and very early stage way, but begins to do that in this space. And I actually think that the um, Booker Wyden, I think it's called the Algorithm Accountability Act bill, that's they've just published an updated version of it, um, Ron Wyden, does a pretty good job of this. And in some ways does a better job than some of the early, early EU legislation. Well, John, that's a vote one from Josh for use the state and democratic structures of the state. 
Do you agree? I I do. Um, it's 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 a pretty tricky problem, and it and it varies from culture to culture and from state to state. Um, I mean, part of the difficulty that we have in discussing this in, in the UK is that um, this is essentially an American argument um, for an American company, and that's that, that's fine. The thought that I had, though, listening to what has been happening and listening to the to the kind of noise surrounding Musk's um, bid for the possible bid for the company is that um, we may all be following energetically a nicely tailored red herring. Uh, in the sense that um, we we have to acknowledge something that's very difficult about Musk, which is that he is um, he is what George Bernard Shaw would call an unreasonable man, but he's also an amazingly has been an amazingly effective entrepreneur. Um, he has done things that most folks would have said, you know, are unimaginably difficult, and certainly in that time scale, very difficult. So he's a formidable operator. Um, his skills and talent do not lie in areas like these difficult questions about regulating free speech. They they lie in the area of of making 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 thing making difficult things uh, at scale, whether it's it's uh, space exploration technology or it's electric cars. Um, so, my thought is, um, if he were interested in Twitter. Would he really be interested in Twitter, or would he, as a as a free speech question, or would he be would he be interested in it as a, a corporation which has not worked well? Twitter is a disaster from a managerial point of view; it has been for a long time. It's a disaster also in a way from a, an investment point of view. Um, uh, I don't think that Musk knows how to fix the the the, the regulation of speech question that that's embedded in Twitter. Um, but what he would know how to do, uh, and perhaps is really interested in, is uh, dismantling and reassembling its structure so to make it into a really successful and profitable business. And it, we may be obligingly followed, following the, the smoke and mirrors of the, of the free speech issue when, in fact, he has an idea uh, and he has the capability to do it, which is in the area that he works in. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering about that at the moment. Um, because. There's no question that Twitter has been very badly managed over many years, um, and and that it it could be restructured uh, in in a in a very uh, uh, imaginative way to become something very profitable. And the thing about Musk, for all his flaws, is that he seems to have um, an instinct for spotting things that other people have missed. Um, so I would think it'd be wrong to underestimate him, uh, and I also think it might be. It might be foolish to follow the smoke screen that he's been laying. Um, I know that sounds like a conspiracy theory, but but uh, what the hell? Just one quick thought on that, which is I, I think that might well be right. Um, I am not enough of a sort of corporate profit making strategist to know um, how plausible it is, but I think that might be right. But the, the only thing I would say is that even though Musk might think that he's laying a smoke stream by talking about the First Amendment and effectively is making an argument that is directly relevant to his argument in court and to the whole future of technology regulation. Yep. It does really matter. That is an important topic. This question of will he or won't he buy it, what does that mean? Not interested. The question of what should the First Amendment mean for the exercise of 
the power of democratic states over technology and technology companies is a really important question. And if, you know, Musk inadvertently draws our attention to that and allows the debate to sort of be broadened a little bit beyond technology policy wants, including to politicians, then I think that's a good thing. What, what sort of stri- what stri- what did strike me was there seem to be different lenses through which people are viewing this controversy. One lens is is the kind of normal mainstream media view, which is well, here's a funny case of a troll buying the platform he trolls. That's one. The second one is the the serious um, concerns that that Josh has been articulating that this is really important that for a democratic point of view, and it is. Uh, a, a key question in relation to the, the regulation of, of tech platforms and their power. And the third one is the Wall Street one, which is to say, why the hell doesn't somebody restructure Twitter so it makes some money? Um, and I think my, my last digression was about was about the Wall Street view, which is not one I normally take. But ultimately, this is about power. So it's interesting. It is interesting because that it was Twitter because in many ways, Sorry, I think uh, I forget who it was that said that, but like Twitter really punches above its weight in terms of you into if you think of it as a, 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 the profit or the value of the company and what it's normally compared to. So like Facebook, which, again, you know, speaking of control is the CEO and like controlling owner is Mark Zuckerberg. So this is another great man who who's quote unquote the great man view of history um, is controlling a platform. But but Twitter <laughs> isn't as profitable as its its comparisons um so but but i wonder for both of you so the the other thing that struck me about this is is twitter is one the place where most journalists live um and it it is critical infrastructure and it is a quasi-public space but is like one of the things that i i was thinking about is is twitter one of the most powerful platforms because I, you know, all of the coverage of it is like, wow, Twitter's so important. Twitter's so important for this. So important for this. Um, so I wonder for for both of you, what do you think of as Twitter's power? And and is it is it that it really is like as powerful as the coverage makes it out to be, or is it that just because it is speech and journalism that it gets talked about more than like something like AWS cloud computing? does which is vastly more important in terms of like hosting the rest of the 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 infrastructure of the internet essentially and government organizations and what have you but doesn't get as much media attention when when it first appeared my first reaction to it was first of all this is very interesting and secondly what it is is a wire service for everybody uh, and in its early phase, that's exactly what it was. Um, it then expanded and morphed into this central part of our public sphere, I think, um, partly because uh, for journalists, it has become <laughs> the wire service. It's really weird. I mean, newspapers and, and broadcasting organizations subscribe to Associated Press and all the others. But actually, everybody working on a, on, on a newspaper or on a, on a in a broadcasting station or on a radio station, they're all watching Twitter feeds all the time. So it has, um, without us really noticing it at the beginning, it has morphed into this absolutely central piece of uh, of infrastructure. That's what gives it its power, um, and the fact that it, you know, it's amazing that it doesn't make money, really serious serious money. That given given that dominance and given that is is um, 
is really remarkable. The, the fact that it has this infrastructural property, um, I think makes it extremely important. And therefore, whoever owns and controls it is also going to be an important problem for democracy one way or another. It really is. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that from the perspective of journalists in particular, Twitter is, you know, an enormously important piece of, of infrastructure. I think when I think about this, I was running for local elections in Bury um, year before last. And so I've started to sort of think about Twitter as a kind of political actor. And it's interesting because it is important, but not for the reasons that people on Twitter often think it's important. Um, so if you want to organize the people who live in the place, Twitter's mostly a waste of time. It's all about Facebook and it really is still all about Facebook. Um, and in particular, that's because, you know, people aged sort of late 30s through low 60s are most likely to vote and they're also most likely to be on Facebook. Um, and I remember when I did a research trip to West Virginia, one of the things I was struck by is how much and how actively people used Facebook and almost nobody was on Twitter. Um, it was Facebook really was an important tool for buying and selling things, for finding jobs and so on. And so political actors really used it and used it effectively. What you use Twitter for if you're trying to run for office or if you're a politician is to influence and engage with elites. And that partly means journalists. It means other sort of politically engaged elites. Um, sometimes it also means your kind of base, particularly where your base tends to be younger and more progressive than the median voter might be in your constituency. Um, but that's often used to make the point that Twitter doesn't matter because it doesn't really have the sort of majority of voters in a place on it. And that's not true because elites matter, even in democracies. Um, and so to the extent that elites matter in democracies, and they matter in some democracies more than in others, you know, they matter more or less depending on what your goal is. You know, if you're just trying to win a straight up majority vote and you're actually campaigning, Twitter is not very useful. If what you're trying to do is change minds about a policy question and change how it's framed, Twitter is very useful. Um, so I think it's I think it's important for that reason. But I also think it is important to remember that even though it is primarily an elite thing and it tends to be younger, and it tends to be more progressive such left, that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It does matter just for different reasons and it's often taken to matter. It's a bit like Stephen Lukes's original conceptualization of power coming in three in three varieties. One, the capacity to force people to do what they don't want to do. Second, the capacity to make them stop doing things they do like to do. And the third one is changing the way they think. And because, of, as, as Josh said, because of the way in which um, Twitter is obsessively uh, followed by professional journalists, and they then, they produce, uh, as it were, the, the public sphere that uh, that, that at least is is represented by by newspapers and and broadcasting and the rest of it, uh, and and not not least of all cable TV in the United States. Um, that's that's the source of its power, really. So so it's, so, it's, so it's really interesting that that you 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 say that Josh about like how people use the different platforms and for what because I do find that like when I want to keep in touch with family or I'm thinking about local events right like I go to Facebook that's what my grandma's on but when I'm thinking about my like professional profile and like finding other academics or promoting this podcast um you know I, I go to Twitter um and one of the really interesting things to bring it back to the Musk case is that Elon Musk also uses Twitter as as you you've said John for his business right I mean he 
essentially uses Twitter to hype up Tesla stocks, which is where most of the value of his company comes from, is, is from the hype on Twitter. So I, so my other thought, and I wonder your, your guys' opinions on this, was, you know, there's been a big anti-monopoly approach to tech in the U.S. and, and a bit more, you know, as well in, in the EU um, and UK. But if if Elon Musk uses Twitter to promote Tesla, does owning Twitter as a PR thing count as a monopoly? Um, is that part of his business? Is I wondered, the other thing that the Musk Twitter thing made me wonder if whether this shows the shortcomings of the anti-monopoly approach, because Musk taking over Twitter, you know, besides the tongue in cheek is, is PR part of, of Tesla's company. It's not a monopoly concern. Um, and so would, does this, you know, does this S incident bring up to, to you guys show any of the shortcomings of, of the anti-monopoly approach, you know, more generally? Well, two things. One thing that I wondered about was what, what do people in the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, think about this row that's going on about Tusk? Um, they, it may be that actually this, they, they, their view is this is none of our business, it's something else. Um, but it, it also um, reveals that even in societies which have, like Britain, which have had um, a concern about media ownership, uh, as a, affecting has having democratic implications, um, this kind of breaks a lot of um, a, a lot of that framework. Um, because whatever else Musk is, he may be a he's, he's a Twitter enabler, I guess. You know, he has he's eighty million followers, and he conducts he conducts on Twitter he conducts polls. You know, should I sell ten percent of my stock or not? Should I? Uh, and and he and then these these the results of these polls are tweeted as if they were kind of opinion polls from 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 the society at large, um, but he, but nevertheless he he so he's he's an individual he's a tech entrepreneur and so on, uh, and and he's also then um, buying a big media property, which is Twitter. Okay, uh, well there is no regulatory authority for for examining that in the United States really. Uh, there might there might be here in Britain, if, but only 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 if he also owns some other media property before he wanted to buy Twitter. So it kind of falls through the cracks of regulatory um, of regulatory systems um, simply because of the way in which technology has changed these conceptions. I suspect that possibly doesn't matter in the US, but it does would matter here. Yeah, I think that the, I think it's absolutely right that the shifts in how power is exercised through the technologies have highlighted some of the limits of how these different regulatory approaches intersect with each other. Um, I think, I mean, it's interesting because like in a way you could call it a sort of kind of version of like vertical integration, maybe, maybe that's why the FTC would be concerned about it. It's sort of the, the downstream value of his company depends on his ownership of the upstream Twitter platform. I mean, it's a bizarre form of vertical integration because usually you're thinking about supply chains and you know, like concrete real stuff. And here we're talking about a share price fundamentally um, and, and the way that speech can shape a share price. So, so maybe they would be concerned about it, I don't know. Um, I do, however, think it, um, I think it's totally right that it does illustrate some of the shortcomings of the anti-monopoly um, approach in general. I think. 
I mean, a couple of things I would say about that, though. Firstly, the, the US and the UK are in a similar bucket in which there are proposals on the table for change in terms of regulation, but actually not much has happened. Um, Lena Khan and, and um, some of her colleagues in the FTC have been doing fantastic work, but actually it hasn't actually changed all that much yet. Now, hopefully that will change, both in terms of cases and some of the um, regulatory requirements that the FTC have issued, um, but it hasn't happened yet. Whereas the EU have you know, already brought several cases and also the Digital Markets Act is a wholesale transformation in how competition in the technology market um, or different markets that technologies are used within uh, works. So I think it remains to be seen how that legislation plays out, but I think they're in a different bucket. And I think in some ways, it's not a bad idea to let that unfold and play out and see how it works um, before, before moving in terms of legislation. But the other thing I would say is that they're often set up as, as binaries. Either we go down the anti-monopoly route or we do something else. And that to me doesn't make any sense. It's uh, anti-monopoly legislation or pro-competition -comp legislation and rules. You know, the, the history of those is that they were set up to achieve particular, you know, actually democratic purposes. And that's good and important. And we do need to update them and apply them and figure out what they mean in the context of an economy that's about data and machine learning and so on. But it doesn't mean we should stop there. They weren't ever supposed to be the whole of how we regulate speech and, you know, the public sphere and all the different institutions that, that um, comprise the public sphere. So to me, what it demonstrates the limits of is not that, or, or the way in which it demonstrates limits is not that we shouldn't go down the anti-monopoly path. It's that the anti-monopoly path is not enough on its own and that you need further questions. In fact, it goes back to the earlier um, point in the discussion where we were talking about the difference between ownership and control. The um, yeah, anti-monopoly legislation is partly about control, but it's about a particular purpose for which control can be exercised, namely competition. And there are other kinds of control that, that we as a democracy should be worried about and interested in when you're talking about the infrastructure of the public sphere. And we shouldn't expect you know, anti-monopoly rules and laws and regulators to be responsible for all of those different concerns. If you wanted an ex a case study in how um, those considerations have changed as a result of the technology, remember the way in which um, Facebook's uh, uh, acquisition of Instagram was waved through. It didn't raise any monopoly concerns because on the one hand, Instagram was about photographs and Facebook was about something else. So, you know, off you go. Um, actually, what it failed to notice is that both are about data. That was the key bit. They were all actually part of the same universe. Uh, but at that time, the regulatory apparatus and the media didn't seem to appreciate that. Um, so, and we can expect this to get worse rather than better, I think, as, as, as tech pervades more of our, uh, of our lives in, in, uh, in, in lots of areas that were previously separate. And that's a really fundamental point that I just want to underline, I think, because, um, I think it's totally right that it was missed that data was the was the binding factor yep. that should have been of concern in that case and that poses a really fundamental question which is how should we think about companies that use data to train machine learning models and what those machine learning models do is in some way commercially useful that's what facebook does it's what google does it's kind of what twitter's trying to do but not making that much money out of it but it's also what you know companies that build predicting policing software 
use? Should we think of all of those as on the same kind of plane? Or actually, should we not worry too much about the fact that what, what binds them together is the use of data to generate machine learning models that are then useful? Actually, all we should really care about is the function that those companies perform in some way. Um, and I think that question of whether we should be looking at the means by which they perform the function, which is data and machine learning in general, or what the function is, it, when we think about how to regulate them, is a really, really important unanswered question. And therefore, the, the big question for regulators in the future would be not what businesses are these different entities in, but are they using, in this case, machine learning technology? Yeah, it's really interesting, I guess, because like one one thing there is then also to think about like the, the profit models, because as, as you pointed out, Josh, there's there's a bunch of different types of companies from Facebook to Twitter to predictive policing to, you know, whatever random app you have on your phone, which makes money through selling data. Um, but I also thought the other thing that, that that strikes me about Twitter is how similar the structure of it is to platforms like Facebook and Instagram, in which you are an individual user with an account that posts to a feed that, you know, and every single account has a customized feed, which is centrally controlled by the corporation, even though obviously like Twitter and Facebook have, have different, um, I don't know, features, the core kind of like individualized account feed based in unique feed based structure is the same. So, so my other thought, and I'm wondering, you know, this comes in the context of all these discussions around web three and decentralizing the web, which I'm kind of skeptical of, but I wonder, is there also, um, when, when we talk about the, the democratic issues, is there, is there also kind of like a technical, technical architectural problem to these platforms? You know, when you compare Facebook to something like Wikipedia, which is also user generated content, but is more of a commons model in a sense, like, can you ever really grapple with the outsized power that the corporations like like Facebook and Twitter have with the kind of like digital technical structure? Um, and is that something that should be should be discussed as well as, you know, anti-monopoly ownership control, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I, I would like to um, I, I would like to argue it in terms of a question. And my question is, can liberal democracies actually control these kinds of entities? Um, the answer hinges on on uh, on the nature of the governance regime of a particular society. Um, what we do know is that they can be controlled because China, are, the Chinese regime is doing a really good job of it. Um, so authoritarians can do it. The question is, can liberal democracies do it? Uh, given that they have, for the last 50 years at any rate, been building um, a, a societies which are prioritizing the needs of corporations rather than those of citizens, say. My pessimistic guess is that liberal democracies are going to find it very hard to do this. I mean, what's interesting about that framing is that um, it's a political question. The question that John poses is a political question, not a technological question. Can liberal democracies do this? It's not about the power of the state that liberal democracies depend on. It's about the politics of the institutions and whether they are capable of, of passing and then enforcing you know, the required legislation. And I think 
one of the interesting case studies there is, is, is not just China, but the comparison between China, the EU and the US and you know, maybe the UK, although at the risk of elevating the UK somewhat too much. Um, because China's an, an autocratic state and it's had no problem controlling these things. Now, what that tells you is that there's nothing about the technologies themselves that prevents forms of central control. Now, we should have always known that, but great, China's proved that point. The EU as an institution has gone surprisingly fast and surprisingly broad in the forms of regulation that it has developed and is now going to enforce. You know, there's GDPR, there's the Digital Services Act and the Digital Markets Act, there's the AI bill coming out next year. Um, and the EU is not a democracy. There's something really important about that fact. The European Commission that publishes these um, legislative proposals takes input from the democracies that make up the European Union, but it is not a democracy. And so the EU, to some extent, is untethered by democratic institutions in developing these forms of control. The two democracies that are interested in technology regulation that are outside those structures are the United States and Britain. And really, the only actual successful legislation passed, legislation passed in those contexts, is the um, online safety bill in Britain, which is a very narrow, targeted, um, you know, sort of protected, important in its own way, but kind of anti really bad stuff, basically, piece of legislation. So I think there is something deep in the tension between democracies and um, the kind of control through legislation that you would need to exercise to regulate these companies. I think that what that means, though, is that that whether or not it, it happens ultimately becomes a, a question of the incentives of the political parties and the legislatures that make up a democracy. And we could talk more about this, maybe, but my bet is that at some point it will very much be in the interest of those legislators to, to act. But I, but I think it is just noteworthy that the two institutions in the world that have done serious regulatory efforts are not democracies. Although it does seem then, you know, there's there's the question of the liberal democracy slash authoritarian axes, but then, you know, corporations, states, and super super state structures like the EU um, are all centralized institutions. So it does seem that then, you know, to go back to your question, John, like there's not a is is there a grassroots way, um, you know, from quote unquote from below. Um, or do you just have to pick your favorite centralized institution to control <laughs> the tech or, or the space or the platform? I think Josh's framing of, of that is very interesting and I hadn't thought of it, which is that to, a reminder that as Jürgen Habermas used to complain, the, the EU has a democratic, the, the European Commission at any rate has a democratic deficit. It is, it is in that sense. Um, a, a, really a non-democratic body and that may explain some of its effectiveness um that's a sobering thought if i had to choose i'd choose the uh i choose the brussels uh, regime rather than the beijing one but that's where the world might wind up well there's an interesting thought because the real question to me as a bunch of well brits and americans talking about this question is would you rather be america slash britain or brussels i mean or china um, but if you choose Brussels, the further question is, would you rather have no regulation currently and be subject to the constraints of democratic institutions or not? Um, and I think like the, the point, you know, the point about grassroots um, forms of control and solutions to this 
there are two versions of how that question gets played out. One is, does the power of citizens matter in shaping whether regulation happens in a democracy? Absolutely. Um, you know, we vote. We do all other forms of democratic engagement in between our votes. Um, you know, organizing has transformed the pursuit of racial justice in America, and it, it already is starting to reshape the political terrain on which technology regulation is happening. And that's because organization, organizing, good organizing, changes the incentives of actors in politics. If there are votes, because those votes are organized in doing something, politicians will do it. So I absolutely think there's a role for grassroots, um, the exercise of grassroots collective power. But that is not, you know, you mentioned Web 3.0, but that is not that form of grassroots because it's not really grassroots. It's like a bunch of VC firms on the West Coast, you know, generating some buzzwords to talk about a very, very contradictory and complicated set of technologies that don't actually exist. Like it doesn't exist. James um, Grimmelman called it vaporware, which I love as a phrase because it, it gets to the idea that the talk about this kind of stuff um, way outpaces the actual delivery and you know, development of it. And that's what's happening to me. It, 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 first of all, it's not grassroots. And secondly, it's not even a thing. It's a set of technologies that we can deploy in a multitude of ways. Um, and so that is not the right grassroots path. It's the democratic political institutions path because it's a political problem, not a technological problem. Although it does strike me, Josh, that you we talk about private, quote unquote, private corporations without any grassroots democratic control, which would have been very similar to how, you know, couple centuries ago, we talked about states as private, political, not really responsive to, to grassroots organizing. So I agree with your point that there's grassroots organizing in states, but I still think that there could be a space for grassroots organizing and corporations and corporate control. Um, obviously, one of the, we've, we've, we've used Elon Musk as a starting point, and, and we've kind of implicitly been um, talking about the challenges in covering Elon Musk and, 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 and the issues of technology corporations. So I wonder to finish off, um, the two of you could say, if you had one piece of advice that you could give, it could be to anybody, it could be to Elon Musk, it could be to the tech industry, it could be the Twitter board, whomever, like what would your piece of advice be about how to think about these issues? Okay, so I'm gonna say two things. One would be to educate the tech world, you know, having worked in tech, this was essentially my job, paid by tech people to say this over and over again, that politics matters. And this is ultimately a sphere of political problems and a question about sets of political institutions, not a set of technology problems and a set of questions about technological possibilities. And I think, you know, Musk is doing politics, that's what he's doing, in, you know, on Twitter. But he would never articulate it or even probably think of it, although I don't know, in those terms. And what I do know is that many of the people who work in tech don't think of these problems in political terms, and they really should and must, because that's what they are above all else. But the flip side of that is that probably if I had to pick one of these two, it would be this one, to um, empower and energize politicians and political actors to understand that, that they can exercise control in this space, you know, not exercising control is a choice and it's a choice that they're continually making. And it's not quite as complicated as some people like to frame it as. And often the people who frame it as complicated have an interest in it being too complicated for, for politicians to get involved with. And so I would really encourage 
um, politicians to to understand their own role in this space and in this sphere, and to understand that they do have power to shape it, and that they're going to make mistakes in how they do that, but they might as well crack on with it because doing that is going to be one of the vital challenges that that political actors face over the course of the century. Uh, yes, if, if I had to give uh, if I had to give Elon Musk one bit of advice, I would say. Uh, look, give up on free speech and stick to what you know how to do, which is make cars and build rockets. There was a digital anthropology done. The English one was subtitled uh, Social Media in an English Village, Keeping People at Exactly the Right Distance. Um, <laughs> which I thought was a bit on the nose.